You want your vacuum to be something that like can double as a, a murder weapon. Yes. Right. Or if I needed to like filter um, some water through it or something, some life, I need to have a life saving function in addition to house cleaning. If I have a boring, stable, repetitive job, knowing what the alternative is, which is an insane anxiety festival of horror, I'll take the boring job. That's my guest, Nick DeSabato, talking about one of the most common fears about specialization, the fear of boredom. I spoke with Nick about his journey towards specialization And this conversation brought out several fascinating points about choosing a specialization, changing a specialization, and using specialization as a tool to create a sustainable, profitable business. I'm Philip Morgan, and this is the Consulting Pipeline podcast, where we talk about building your consulting pipeline through positioning, education-based content marketing, and marketing automation. Uh, Nick, who are you and what do you do? So I am a interaction designer from Chicago. I run a small design consultancy in the city. I am probably most known on the internet for two things at this point. I run a A-B testing monthly service called Draft Revise. It's become widely known as like one of the more preeminent um, productized consulting services among bootstrappers. Um, we can talk about what that term means in a moment. And... Um, I also wrote a book about interaction design called Cadence and Slang, which was one of the earliest Kickstarter projects, and it's in its second edition and has sold over 3,000 copies to date. It is uh, widely considered one of the better books on interaction design. It's meant to be very evergreen, and that's essentially it. Great. So I want to help people understand where you are in the process of defining and executing a business focus. You know, as of today, what do you focus on? I uh, I focus on two things, really. Mm-hmm. I focus on running A-B tests for small businesses. And we can talk about how I niche down in that in a moment. Okay. The predominance of those businesses are SaaS businesses, although I also work for e-commerce companies. Uh, until recently, I worked for a blog. And uh, anybody who has interesting problems can come my way, and I'll I'll accept that work. But the service was built for SaaS businesses in mind. Hmm. The other thing I do, which is my most recent offering, and I hope to keep going for as long as I have a job, is professional coaching services. Hmm. Uh, I'm widely known as somebody who creates a stable, durable, sane business for himself. And I want to pay that lesson forward. I want to teach people about it, and I want to help them out in their their work. So I have a kind of one-on-one, very custom-tailored service that I provide for people to um, create their own offering and establish their own authority and stand up for themselves in client negotiations and all of those things. Nice. So let's wind back in, in your personal journey towards getting to where you are today. How did you get started in um, in business or being self-employed? I left my job, like everybody, and uh, I, I wouldn't. I would recommend having something together before you leave your job. But I left <laughs> my job very suddenly, uh, and uh, yeah, they wanted me to. They wanted me to commute for five days a week for the quote the foreseeable, and I'm just not having it. I mm-hmm. like building a very intentional community home and. Uh, 
you can't really hang out with people on a Wednesday night when you're in Boston. Oh, and that's the kind of commute we're talking about? Yeah, no, we're we're talking getting on an airplane and flying to Boston. Yeah, I should have made that clear. Uh, <laughs> that is that is a commute. <laughs> it's it wouldn't. I would have gotten a lot of miles, but uh, you can't really make friends with miles. You no. then that's not good. So, no. so uh, what, what time frame are we talking about here? This was January of twenty twelve. Okay, eleven. It was some years. It was a couple of years ago. Okay. Uh and the very short reductive history of draft is I quit my job, started doing one-off projects for clients, uh, continued doing that and built up a consultancy in that way and launched draft revise, uh, on a whim, really. Uh, I wrote and launched everything within the span of a week. Uh, just thinking like, well, I wanted to get more retainer work. I wanted to get more stable and durable work. I wanted to get all of these things. And, uh, you know, moving into A-B testing is not exactly what I normally do for a living. I do interaction design for a living, like mm -hmm. the layout and behavior of an interface. And uh, information architecture comes out of that and sometimes content strategy. And I like doing all of those things. I put together Draft Revise as kind of a side thing, mm -hmm. uh, expecting that it would just be what I could upsell clients to. Uh, okay, well, I've put together the wireframes. Let's see if they performed well. Mm -hmm. Let's see if we can optimize them. Let's see if we can try and improve the user experience. And that was, I launched Draft Revise on a Monday. On Tuesday, a colleague named Brennan Dunn posted a huge thing about it on his newsletter. Uh, that Thursday, another colleague named Patrick McKenzie wrote a 5,000-word teardown of my marketing page. And then my server crashed, and things have not really <laughs> been the same ever since. So uh, Draft Revise made, we're nearing end of 2014, it made whatever 8 thirteenths of my income is this year. So um, That's super impressive. Yeah, like around two-thirds of my income, yeah. yes. So I'm, you know, and that's just Draft Revise. I've backed out another offering called Revise Express where I do one-off teardowns of your marketing funnel and... That is uh, actually not done insanely well this year compared to Draft Revise. Mm -hmm. Like Draft Revise was almost, you know, I could have ran my entire business on Draft Revise if I had wanted. Everything else that I got was effectively gravy income. That's amazing. So, okay, yeah. so, but take me back to 2012. So what kind of clients were you taking and what kind of clients were you going after? And did you have any, you know, level of exclusivity in what you would, the kind of work you would accept? Yeah, I did, but it was mostly by the way that I negotiated. Mm. I preferred to work with small businesses because it was easier to sell in the work. Mm. It was easier to be closer to the people that were critiquing the work. It was easier to get contracts signed and invoices paid. Mm -hmm. uh, and generally, I had to work with a small business that had enough money to afford me and that had interesting problems. And that's a very open-ended statement, but I know an interesting problem when I see it, and making your next Facebook microsite is not that. <laughs> how, did right? you, how did you find clients at that time? I, a lot of referral, a mm -hmm. lot of, a lot of getting out of the house and talking to people in meetups, mm -hmm. a lot of speaking at conferences. By this point, Cadence and Slang was out before I quit my job. Oh, really? So, yeah. So it launched in 20, the, the Kickstarter launched at the end of 2009. The book was released at the end of 2010 and the second edition came out in 2013 and mm -hmm. I left between the first and second edition. I left my job, I mean, mm -hmm. and 
so by that point, people were already asking me to speak at big fancy conferences. I was asked to speak at South by Southwest uh, two weeks after Cadence and Slang came out. Mm-hmm. And they put me in like the one of the the ballrooms, like it was more of an airplane hangar than a ballroom. <laughs> and uh, I don't know how to speak to an airplane hangar. I'm not very experienced at that. I'm yeah. still not. And uh, so I was I had a name for myself. People were like, get me the Cadence and Slang guy by uh-huh. that 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 worked out very well for me um but i didn't have any cold sales i rarely directly talked with people um i didn't have a solid marketing empire i hadn't written a very persuasive marketing page even up to that point because i Mm. really didn't have an incentive to Mm -hmm. so were you happy with the clients you were getting around that time frame more or less Mm -hmm. i wasn't happy with the fact that projects ended because then you don't get paid anymore, right? And that's no—that's not really very much fun there. So I uh, tried to find some way to get on retainer, which is what Draft Revise ended up turning into. Yeah. Uh, but the actual clients I was quite satisfied with. Like my last two or three clients before I launched Draft Revise were the most fulfilling work that I had done in my consulting career up to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thrilled to be working with Cards Against Humanity and New Music USA and Chicago Magazine, all of which happened in the final six months before Draft Revise launched. Mm-hmm. So I left something good in order to embrace this mm-hmm. and uh it it served me well it was an enormous professional risk and uh something i probably i don't even know if i would have told my old self to even do was uh you know probably born out of a fit of insanity but uh <laughs> you're talking about uh, launching draft revise not even just launching draft revise it mm-hmm. was because I had launched Draft Revise, I thought it wasn't going to do well. It was launching Draft Revise, seeing that it did well, and then deciding to abandon the notion of one-off consulting projects as the focus of my business, saying, oh. like, this is what my business is going to do. Right. That's the thing that was probably functionally insane for me to do at the time. Interesting. What were the, the as you look back from uh, whenever it was, 2011 or 2012, until the launch of Draft Revise, what were the pivotal moments um, towards that kind of got you to having that focus? Uh, In the end of my first year, I had, I believe, $23 in Draft's bank account. Mm -hmm. I almost ran out of money, and I was probably two or three days away from going out of business. Uh, and then that happened again six weeks later. So having a near-death experience for the business is certainly enough to <laughs> be a very forceful wake-up call for you, right? Like right. that's, um, and you're thinking like, okay, well, I can't deal with not only financially but psychologically. I can't deal with the fact that I'm going to be asking people to forward me rent while I wait for this five thousand dollar check to maybe show up or not. Mm-hmm. And that's not the kind of job that I wanted. And if I have a fake invented job and have quit my existing job to do whatever I want, then I'm not expressing enough agency or willpower over the way that my business runs. Hmm. I think too many people, they'll quit their job and they'll try and structure their business around something that looks familiar. Like they'll say, okay, well, here's a client pipeline. I have a pipeline now. Uh, here's an hourly rate. I'm going to download all of my legal stuff off of Docracy. Mm-hmm. I'm going to uh, get a bunch of templates from my friends. 
Uh, I'm going to wing it on the bookkeeping mm-hmm. and that'll be my business. And I'm doing that because all of my friends do that. And it's not because it's a good idea or what I want to be doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I followed that for a long period of time. Like it, um, it was something that I definitely, uh, for better or worse, I was just like, well, I'm running a consultancy. I bill hourly. I bill this much hourly. And I pass the savings along in this way, and here's my master services agreement. It looks like every other friggin' master services agreement out there. Mm-hmm. And that is good for getting started, but if you're not asking kind of a what now question after you've gotten used to that, uh, then you're not really focused on the growth of your business or the progression of it, not just in terms of revenue, but in terms of it being a better kind of business that you want for yourself. So it it sounds like there was a time when you you kind of got serious. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And I think that happened uh, kind of at the beginning of 2013. Like Mm -hmm. that was right around when Chicago Magazine became a huge thing. When Chicago Magazine was wrapping up New Music USA got in touch with me. I got that by uh, knowing their digital director from a conference the year prior uh, and I was working out of Cards Against Humanity's office in the time, so I ended up wireframing their whole e-commerce system a couple of months after New Music wrapped up, and we just transitioned right into that. Mm-hmm. And Draft Revise came out of, after Cards wrapped up, I took a month off of client work deliberately and just spent you know, $7,000 on random expenses, and that was the month's expenses, and mm-hmm. just didn't make any money that month. And I made the second edition of Cadence and Slang and sent it off to an editor, wrapped up the final issue of a design quarterly that I was working on, built an e-commerce system that I still use to take all of my payments from all of my clients. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had a week left at the end of it. (laughs) I finished all of that in like three weeks. And it was the middle of July and I could have like, you know, sodded off to the lakefront and just gotten, you know, worked on my tan. And that would have been it. And I thought, well, I've always wanted to do this retainer thing and I've always wanted to do follow on work. I've been, you know, grinding my axe about that on my mailing list a little bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe I can do something about that. So I wrote a marketing page, uh, ran it past a few people. They edited it. That was, And I launched Draft Revise. I launched Draft Revise that Monday and I launched Cadence and Slang's Kickstarter the day after because I expected no one would care about Draft Revise and everyone would care about the Cadence Kickstarter. And <laughs> what ended up happening, yeah, right, like, <laughs> was everybody ended up caring about both of those things and uh, it was not fun. I was overworked for the rest of the year, basically, and it kind of sucked. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I ended up having the best year in business that I've ever had. So that was the plus side about it. Let me ask you some, uh, personal questions. So, um, when, when you were sitting there about to, uh, publish, you know, the, the draft revised marketing page, were you concerned that you would get bored with it? Because essentially it is a lot of repetitive, at least process, maybe not repetitive work, but repetitive process. Yeah. Well, the hope is that I get faster mm-hmm. at doing it also. So uh, it might be repetitive and it might be boring and it might be the same kind of work. And and to an extent it is. It's mm-hmm. like, let's do your call to action and your headline because those perform well. And I do those first because they're low hanging fruit and you usually haven't tested them and they happen to impress clients. Mm-hmm. So there is a, a certainly an amount of repetition with it. But w- were you afraid that it was going to, that repetition was going to turn into boredom? And if 
whether you were or not, did it actually turn into boredom? I'll answer the first question first. I'm not afraid of that because if I have a boring, stable, repetitive job, Mm -hmm. knowing what the alternative is, which is an (laughs) insane anxiety festival of horror, (laughs) I'll take the boring job. I'm not getting any younger and very happy to, you know, nurture something that is like completely unsexy and uninteresting to the vast majority of people if it means it will continually make me money in a consistent and repeatable way like that's that's the bigger concern for me um it's not ideal but if you're talking trade-offs that's a trade-off that i'm very happy to be making i think that's so common that um you know that thought process around boredom and is this going to get boring you know, I left the office job to get away from this type of routine, right? And and clever uh, people in in the world of tech work are usually very creative, and I I think that's just like the death sentence for someone who's creative. Yeah, is is that um, that fear of boredom? Yeah. But yeah. Uh, and and you said you know you yourself said that you like solving interesting problems. That was part of what you know, carried you through those early years of, of being self-employed. Yeah. I, I want to be a little bit more nuanced about that though, because if interesting problems came my way, like one a month, every month for 12 months, then I think that would be the ideal, right? Like sure. you, you get interesting work and it just always comes your way and you never have to worry about it. But when you're doing an independent job, you have to worry about rainmaking and trying to figure your own stuff out constantly. And so I don't think that really works out insanely well in practice. Um, If I, if I had a a situation where I had board, you know, boredom work, whatever you want to call it. Mm Mm-hmm. And I don't think draft revise is entirely boredom work, just to be clear. Sure, sure. Uh, If I had boredom work and I got better at it and I was able to say, okay, well, I can do boredom work for 10 hours a week and then I have 30 hours a week to do whatever I want. That's a better outcome Mm -hmm. because you have this flexibility to do whatever you want, pursue side projects, build a robocaller and annoy your friends, (laughs) um, write crazy newsletters about a sandwich that you ate once. How, how, how much time do you spend doing business development and, you know, just uh, downtime in the office? Uh, probably about a fourth of my week is spent on business development. Mm-hmm. And that can take many forms. It can take the form of sitting on a podcast with uh, somebody that you care about and respect. It can take the form of writing a newsletter. It can take the form of uh, reminder emails to other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can, it's really... I have 10 hours slated for draft miscellany every, every week. Mm-hmm. And uh, then there's, you know, obviously five hours for lunch. And then the rest of it is whatever I feel like doing. There are a lot of situations where I'll uh, run out of work to do for the day. And I'll just, you know, start writing or I'll go home and just start reading or mm-hmm. I'll do whatever I need. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's. It's a matter of knowing how to manage your routine, how to plan out your week. Uh, I spend two days a week assessing all of my existing work and trying to schedule out the next week of work and making sure that I'm not overextending myself or burning out. So That's great. So when people meet you and they've heard of you, 
do they think you're you're the A/B testing guy, the the draft revised guy, the interaction design guy? Increasingly more the draft revised guy and the A/B testing guy, uh, okay. less the interaction design guy. Because I've been spending the past week or not week, the past year of my design practice doing A/B tests mm -hmm. and talking about A/B tests and promoting my work as an A/B tester because it makes me money. Yeah, and I I want to be clear that to both your listeners and to my clients that I take my design thinking and my interaction design expertise and bring it to bear on A-B testing problems. Mm -hmm. I have a welcome packet that I send along to my clients. And the first thing I say is I consider myself a designer first and an A-B tester like 10th. <laughs> and if you want somebody who's dedicated, who calls themselves a CRO or calls themselves a growth hacker, which just makes me puke bile, you are in the wrong place and you need to run screaming in the opposite direction. Um, so I call myself a designer, but you know, talks cheap. Like I can, I can say that I'm a designer as much as I want, but work begets work. And I very firmly believe that in any arm of my practice. Mm. Um, and that can be for a specific industry, can be for a specific activity like IA versus IXD. It can be for, um, a certain level of sophistication for the client. If you, you know, bill $40 an hour, you're going to get garbage clients instead of, you know, pricing on value like I tend to do. And then you get really cool clients like Cards Against Humanity or New Music USA or The Wire Cutter. Um, yeah. Any of those. Yeah. 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 Because of this perceptual issue uh, and because of the fact that I will probably consider myself a designer for the rest of my life. Like I am lucky enough to have very firmly settled on a profession for the rest of my life. And I mm -hmm. don't foresee that changing forever. Uh, because of that, I want to make sure I don't ever get too far afield of things. Mm -hmm. And I'm concerned. I think rightly so because it's, you know, two thirds of my income right now that I'm just pigeonholing myself as an AB tester. Yeah. Um, and if you add on all of the things that weren't design, uh, probably about probably about ninety percent of my income this year came from things that weren't design. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's that's a problem as well. Um, so I'm looking to either launch new services, uh, write new books, um, nudge in that direction. I don't expect you know it's a big ship to turn. I don't expect it's going to change in one year, but I'm going to start moving away from the fact that I'm considered the A/B testing guy. Yeah, I'm lucky enough that I can do that in a rational and clear-headed way while Draft Revise continues to support me. Uh, I'll continue to onboard people and make money through it. Uh, I'm not throwing it away, but I I don't want it to be eighty percent of my income in subsequent years. I'm concerned about that happening. So Sure. Yeah. But I, I'm impressed with, that your response is not, well, I'm, I'm going to burn it down. And <laughs> it was a giant mistake. It, it's just a part of the journey, right? To explore a direction and see how far it takes you and then decide if you want to keep going or, or go a slightly different direction. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. And it's not I don't think making $150,000 on a wildly successful service is a mistake. I don't think rational actor would cop to that. Now, maybe you're miserable and you don't like doing the work. So it's a mistake to you, but people got something out of it. You mm -hmm. couldn't have done that for 18 months and not had people get something out of it. That's preposterous to think that. Well, and you, and you were optimistic about the prospects of getting what you want 
for your business and having, you know, you talked earlier about taking control of your business. That's what you're doing. Yeah. And, you know, if, if I'm taking control of my business to get stable, durable work with draft revise a year and a half ago, because of this near death experience with draft, it stands to reason that the next step is to continue refining it so that I continue to have a stable and durable business, just doing more and more of what I want, which is practicing design every day. Yeah. So if you were giving advice to one of your coaching clients and they were in the same position, what would you, I mean, you said work begets work. Is that the advice you would give them? Just I would, I would say that as a way of framing the problem. Yes. Yeah. I, I, that is a very like first principle thing for me. And I believe it is the case for anybody. If you, you know, if you look at anybody else that's found a niche in the past, you will see that they have a, they have a habit of being known as the X person, right? Mm -hmm. Like Samuel Hulick is the user onboarding guy. Right. And Patrick McKenzie is the life cycle email guy. Mm -hmm. And I'm the A-B testing guy or the, you know, I, I'm the other things that are the cadence and slang guy. Right. Um, and you don't want to be known as the insert job that sucks here person. <laughs> you really don't. Yeah. Oh, this is the person that I can take advantage of when I need a $50 logo. Like, right. Yeah, that's that's not the kind of thing that you want a, a reputation for. So just unpacking that statement, work begets more work. You're saying what you say yes to, you can expect to get more of and what you say no to the same. Is yeah, it? yeah. Yeah, you are a factor of the decisions that you make affirmative or negative, right? Like if you say, if you start saying no to interaction design work, or I don't know, if you're a Ruby developer and you're sick of Stripe integrations because everybody needs a Stripe integration, uh, the more you say no to Stripe integrations, the less likely a Stripe integration is going to come in the door. Mm -hmm. And the more you say that you want to do, I don't know, um, DevOps, uh, the more likely it is you're going to get DevOps jobs, but it's going to take a year, year and a half. And mm -hmm. while that's happening, you have a mouth to feed or multiple mouths to feed and are, you know, shelter to put over your head. So that's, that's the essential tension that you're dealing with. Is it a matter of winding it down or cutting it off or, um, continuing to take on that work and trying to find some way to wind it back? And, and all of that is a fine art. Like it's very difficult to try and figure out a way to resolve that. Sure. What's um, noticeable and a little bit interesting is no one anointed you the A-B testing guy <laughs> or anything no. you did. No. It was all a decision, uh, some level of clarity when, when you came to it. And you did it and, and you stuck with it, it seems like. Nobody asked me permission to write a marketing page where I came off as the A-B testing guy. They didn't. If I If I had to go through an authority for that, like... I already go through authorities for my taxes every year. I really don't want to do that. Like mm -hmm. nothing is stopping you from finding a niche and saying, I do this and I'm good at it. Yeah. And the more you say that, the more it's going to become true. Yeah. Winding back a little bit, what role do you think cadence and slang played in how all this unfolded? You said it, um, I think it helped you get speaking gigs was one thing you mentioned. Yes. Yes. Uh, it helped me increase my salary at my full-time job. Hmm. Uh, writing a book helped me come across as extremely authoritative in what I do. And hmm. what I do is interaction design. 
And uh, so having that and saying, well, he's a published author, not only that, but it's a print book. And not only that, but the print book looks dope. Uh, like making that a major thing, like, yeah, no, you're, and now all of a sudden, not only am I an author, but I'm a speaker. Like three months later, I'm flying out to Austin and speaking in ballroom A at South by Southwest and doing all these things. Wow. And, and that didn't happen overnight. It happened because I spent two and a half years writing the book. But once the book dropped, people realized, oh man, this guy is good. Yeah. And uh, I wasn't, but the book made me look good. Mm. Did you uh, ever feel like people took it less seriously because it wasn't published by a mainstream publisher? No, oh. I didn't. Because it looked awesome. Yeah. And... And it looked more impressive than any trade paperback you get. It wasn't garish. I designed the whole thing and it looked nice. Like mm -hmm. people were very impressed by the typography in it. And it was because I spent a lot of time putting polish into it that it, you know, I, I aspired for it to look as good as like Bringhurst elements of typographic style or any of the Edward Tufte books, which are like cloth bound and, um, letterpress stamped and all of this stuff. And, mm -hmm. um, very nicely done and well appointed. And um, you compare that against any anything in like the self-help section of Barnes and Noble and you just realize like, wow, this is kind of awful. Like <laughs> the publishing industry, they don't know good gra graphic cover design because they throw their first principles out the window in order to make more sales. They just make covers that look garish. Mm. I had nothing to answer to at that point. Um, finding a printer was hard. Mm -hmm. Finding somebody who would take me seriously as an independently published author took 20 tries. It was mm -hmm. very, very difficult. But the general public doesn't care about that conversation. But you're saying they enough people noticed that you really sweated those details. Yeah, I think so. That's great. People were posting about it on Twitter and like freaking out at how good it was. There was an employee of Kickstarter that tweeted, this is what Kickstarter is for. Oh, wow. <laughs> And that and that was at a time when Kickstarter had like nine people in it. Wow. So, yeah, like having having those kinds of endorsements was really powerful for me and um, had almost nothing to do with the content inside of it. I could have just, you know, written Laura Mipsum for 129 pages, but I didn't, fortunately. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. You do coaching. You you try to help people in a larger way than I do. I just try to help them build up the courage to make that decision to focus themselves. What advice uh, would you give a self-employed person, a freelancer, or even a small firm on finding focus and, and turning that into better business results? Yeah, that's a great question. So I have kind of a multi-step process that I, I, did for draft revise and I'll just be autobiographical and generalize it, uh, for, for you, dear listener. Uh, the first thing that I did was I looked at everything that I was good at or could very quickly become good at as an interaction designer and things that could kind of fit under the UX umbrella, which is a lot of things, right? It's research, wireframes, IA content, follow through analytics, all that, mm -hmm. uh, ethnography. Um, so, okay, well list all of those things. Um, and all of those are not off the table yet. Um, figure out what could be done on a stable monthly basis. 
Uh, mm-hmm. So this is how I made draft revise as a monthly stable service. If you just want to do one-offs, this might be different from you. Uh, if you want to just be known as the person who does these things, that's also cool. Um, and I looked at analytics as a good option because it's an ongoing practice. It occurs after launch and it could have fit a lot of my clients' conditions really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I looked at what people were kind of hurting about right now. And A-B testing was out there because everybody wanted to do it and they didn't really know where to start. So I zoomed in on that a little bit and thought, okay, well, now that I've picked a topic, I might pick two or three others and try and follow this next step to see if I can qualify it out. Um, I would see, okay, well, what's the nature of the deliverables that I would be providing for somebody every month? In uh, this case, it would be creating a set of tests and analyzing them and providing a written report. So I would essentially, you would install Optimizely or VWO and I would be given access to that and run your A-B testing practice for you. Mm -hmm. Um, I might begin by providing a summary of things I plan on doing or a a long-term plan about like tactics, about how we'd be going about tackling this. Um, But beyond that, on a monthly basis, I run A-B tests for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Okay, well... There's your scope. Uh, what are the problems? That, the next step is what are the problems that people face dealing with this? Well, they're clueless about it. Um, A-B testing consultants are typically quite expensive. Uh, they might not have the traffic. They might not have the internal capabilities. They might be scared mm-hmm. of switching to a different type of design practice that involves a different type of constraints and a different sort of routine. Um, so I wrote up a marketing page that tried to address those objections and tried to allude to that. And the reason I, I figured out those sorts of issues first is when I write the marketing page by that point, I've established a report with the reader. I have a reader in mind. The reader is probably somebody who belongs at a SaaS business, um, a small SaaS business, like four to eight people or something like that. That's mm-hmm. doing reasonably well. Um, and is okay and not shy doing uh, B2B sales. Mm -hmm. So uh, I started writing the marketing page, figuring out the pitch. I wrote the marketing page entirely first. And if I've done my job right, those can substitute for the terms and conditions. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying don't make something with legal force, but without legal force, but um, definitely think about are they going to have any other lingering questions? Are mm-hmm. there any unanswered issues that somebody needs to be figuring out? Is there a part of the engagement that you envision being a gotcha, right? Mm-hmm. Like you send along a report and the client pushes back and demands endless revisions on it, which for me has never happened, but could, right? Mm-hmm. Like, right. Um, does your marketing page allude to these things? And they can be in small ways, but they should. Right. Um, and then just keep refining that. Then get your lawyer to make terms and conditions for you. Um, build a system for people to pay for you. Uh, I have my own through draft. Um, mm-hmm. You can use, uh, there are a lot of options um, out there that uh, allow you to do, uh, take credit cards on a consistent basis. Right. Um, and then just keep refining it and launching it. Mm-hmm. Uh, once, you know, by the time you've launched it, hopefully you have a degree of authority in that field. So I would recommend building an email list and an audience and figuring out a way to promote that you are competent and capable in doing what you do before you launch. Because mm. otherwise you're trying to make out on the first date and that's not cool. So. Right. <laughs> right. 
make out on the sixth date. That was all I was going to say. <laughs> nice. Take it slow. They they deserve it. Have a plan for when you're going to make out. Have impressed the heck out of them before. <laughs> that's a horrible metaphor. Um, <laughs> but that's the one that I stated. So there we are. Do you think folks need to have, should they write a book to establish that authority? Are there other ways? Uh, speak. Uh, guest on other people's podcasts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> guest on other people's blogs. Go to meetups. Talk at meetups. Meetups can be 30 people, but they care the most about you. And they're a really good way to polish up your speaking chops. Mm. Um, I wish I had done that before I had gone and spoken in South by Southwest because maybe I wouldn't have had a giant panic attack. Um, Does that happen on stage or right before? Before and after. And oh yeah, and during. <laughs> and somewhat during, but oh, I, kept, I kept it in check. Um, I need to man. tell. I need to tell you about the time I bombed um, speaking in front of 200 MCTs in Redmond. <laughs> Thank God, right? Like everybody does it, but you you'll bomb speaking at some point, and you dust yourself off and yep. try again. Um, but yeah, no, I I think there there are a lot of different routes to niching down. Mine was writing a book. Mm-hmm. Yours might be different. Okay. So yeah. Well, Nick, this was fantastic. How can our listeners uh, find out more about you? Uh, you can go to my business site at draft.nu. Uh, you can go to my personal website, which is beautiful and inspiring, at nickd.org. It's N-I-C-K-D as in dog. Uh, and you can sign up for my mailing list and stay in touch. I love hearing from people. I love when people email me. Um, I actually welcome email unlike the vast majority of folks. Um, but yeah, uh, you can get in touch at any point and I'd love to chat with you about, uh, anything about niching down. If you have questions about this sort of stuff, I'd love to talk with you. That's it for this episode of the consulting pipeline podcast. Thanks to my guest, Nick DeSabato. Again, you can find Nick online at nickd.org and draft.nu. You can find more episodes of this podcast at consultingpipelinepodcast.com. I'm Philip Morgan, and I hope to see you again next time.